Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Church. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. If you'd like to follow along with the reading and need a Bible, they can be found in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, and can be found on page 411. Follow along with me as I read. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, to the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand out, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay down to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hashuerus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this church. God, I do pray that you would prepare our hearts for the sermon you have for us this morning. God, I pray that you would bless um, Jason as he delivers this message. God, I pray that you would hear, uh, that we would hear exactly what it is that uh, you intend for us to hear this morning and take it with us throughout our week. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. Man, it's good to see you today. This is week number four of our series in Esther. Um, our creative team, when we told them we were going into Esther, they said, well, let's just call it Esther. And so that's what it is. Esther, the silent presence of God. And so today we're going to see where we got that title from for this book. And so um, here's what Esther isn't. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with our church or new around here, our favorite thing is to take a book like Esther, go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And here's what we've yet to find in the book of Esther. We've yet to find a, a hero. In fact, we found like some anti-heroes. I know that's like the, the modern way to do an action movie is to have an anti-hero now. But that's what we see. There's not a lot of people we're looking in the story and say, that's who I want my daughter to be exactly like, or that's who I want my son to be exactly like, which I'm going to be honest with you. It's made it a little tricky for the uh, curriculum writers for kids ministry, you know, because uh, as we've talked about harems and stuff like that, yeah, we, yeah, that's the book of Esther. If you're new, it's like that, okay? Like, so we've left harems out. Like, if you want to tell your kids about harems and what those are, you're more than welcome to do that over, over lunch uh, because it is our goal to partner with parents to raise kids who love Jesus. So they are in the same scriptures as we're in. They're not learning all the themes that you're learning because some of this content is rated R and that's a rated G environment back there, just just saying. But, but yeah, but you can partner with your kids, go over the text with them, talk with them. Our hope is that some of you mom and dads we know have just started walking with Jesus, and we don't want you to feel like you have to pass some kind of curriculum or seminary to be able to talk to your kids about the Scripture. So as we go, so they go. And so anyways, but what we're finding here is that Esther and Mordecai are living like hypocrites in the land of Persia, in the city of Susa. And uh, they are Israelites, but they're undercover Israelites living as Persians. So they're betraying the commands of God. They're disregarding the dietary laws that God gave to Moses. All the things that the Israelites were supposed to do to be considered set apart and clean and different from the other nations, they're not doing this. 
and God is using them for His purposes. It is a scandal. It doesn't make sense. It's just like the gospel. I remember one time a guy asked me, are you telling me that, um, that these people that can just live like hell, that all they got to do is look to Jesus and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's it? And I said, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for the last couple thousand years, people have been trusting that Jesus' life is their righteousness, that Jesus' death is their forgiveness, and his resurrection is our hope. And so we're not impressing Jesus with our morality. We're going to him and saying, hey, man, I suck. You think you can forgive me of my sins? And we're forgiven, not because of the mantra and the words, but because of the work of Jesus. Because with his life, he accomplished perfection. With his death, he absorbed hell for those who would trust in him. With his resurrection, he gave us a hope that is greater than who the president is or our vacation or our kids going to bed on time. I mean, those are all important things, but our hope is Jesus and not in our circumstances. All right. So I say that to say some of you are waiting until you level up. Some of you are waiting until you get your marriage straightened out or your kids aren't crazy or until you just feel better about yourself to say, would you come to church with me? Or, hey, can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Because some of you are afraid someone will go, aren't you kind of a hypocrite? And you can say, yeah, Jesus is kind of into hypocrites. He saves hypocrites every day. And there's room for one more at my church. So you want to come with me? You know, that's the scandal of the gospel. So I say that, and that's kind of a unique intro to a sermon, but to say, I hope that when you read this, that it's encouraging to see that God uses jacked up, messed up lives for his good purposes and for his glory, that he's not waiting on Mordecai and Esther to leave hypocrisy behind them before he starts using them in redemptive human history. He uses them just as they are, and we're going to see them grow, and we're going to see them change, but God doesn't wait for them to grow and wait for them to change before he uses them for his purposes. So my hope today is we read the text, and today we're going to read the reason this book was written. This book was written to reveal a plot um, to destroy all of the Jews, and it wasn't in Jerusalem, it was in Persia, and it, wasn't, um, it was in a, a city called Susa. And this is way outside of Israel, way outside of Jerusalem, but there's some stuff happening there that would have impacted God's people all the way back in Jerusalem. So just for, for you to know the historic timeline, Israel is a nation within a nation at the time this book is written. And there are people like Nehemiah, and Ezra, who have returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and they find uh, old scrolls, and they start reading the Bible again, and the people of God are starting to worship God again back in Israel and back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding after the Babylonian exile they were in, and now they're in a Persian exile. But Mordecai and Esther are in Susa, and their life is significant because there's a plot to destroy all the Jews from Susa, and Queen Esther is going to speak up and use her power to save God's people. So that's the point of this text we're going to read today, and it's the whole purpose of the book being written. So my prayer as we read it is that God would reveal some themes to you. We're going to see the theme of providence uh, in, this, in this passage, and so I hope that you will be able to see God's providential hand in your life. Um, we're going to see uh, conflict. We're going to see a culture war starting to happen, and we're going to see that Jesus doesn't cancel us out, but he reconciles us and what it looks like to live as uh, reconciled people, not as a canceling out one other people engaged in a culture war. Uh, our war is not one of the culture, it's one of glory, it has implications for the culture, but ultimately what we want to see is people who are not God's people become God's people, and that will change everything. 
That's what we want to see. So that being said, let's just jump right into Esther chapter 2. So you can back up a little bit from what we read together. If you've got your good old-fashioned book, you can just turn the pages back. And if you've got your phone or your iPad, you can just click the button and go back to Esther chapter 2, 19. If you didn't bring any of those things, we'll have it on the screen for you. It says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time. I'm going to just pause there. I consider myself an expository preacher. I like to explain what's happening in the text. I have no idea what the virgins are doing all together. I don't know what they did the first time. I don't know what's happening the second time. It's some kind of party. I don't know what it is, but Mordecai is hanging outside you know, the party, and so that's all I know, all right? Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her because Esther still obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Let's pause there for a minute. We're seeing some dysfunction in this relationship. Esther is kind of like Uncle Joey, uh, you know, from Full House trying to raise the daughters. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And um, it's kind of like Full House gone wild. Mordecai's doing the best he can with what he's got. And Esther, her parents died some, some time in this timeline in the Persian exile. She's been raised by her uncle. And what it's telling us here is she's a woman who's still obeying her uncle. And that is dysfunctional. I just want to point that out, that the Bible speaks to children who grow up to be adults. When we're kids, we obey our parents. Absolutely. It's a sin to disobey your parents. As you become an adult, you should no longer be obeying your parents, but you should be honoring your parents. There's a difference between honoring and obeying. So remember, we always worship and obey Jesus. When we're kids, we obey our parents. As adults, we worship Jesus and we honor our parents. And she's still obeying her uncle Mordecai. So he told her to live in secret. Do not reveal your identity. Don't let anyone know that you're an Israelite, one of God's people. We're undercover here. And so that's what she had done. So she's queen now. And the king, Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, um, would be his Persian name. Um, you're probably more familiar with that name in history. Um, he has no idea that he's married to a Jewish woman. In verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than, not to be confused with Little Than, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And um, when he says lay hands, I understand that phrase where I come from, we lay hold of people. That doesn't mean we're going to pray for them. Okay? So they're going to get a hold of Ahasuerus and either kill him or whip him or something. I don't know if you've ever had a boss that ticked you off and you conspired to meet them after work in the parking lot. That's kind of what's happening here. And Mordecai hears about it. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. So Mordecai is going to start to get some change in his pocket with King Ahasuerus. He's, he's going to rise in a little bit of political prominence. He's the uncle to the queen, and also he's going to save the king from a conspiracy. <clears throat> Verse 23 says, When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. That sounds like pirate stuff right there. Hanged on the gallows. All right. And it was recorded, I don't know why all pirates speak with Australian accents, but that's what they do. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. I just, I, we're going to read this, I'm going to talk about it, and then move on quickly, but this is important. It's not the big idea of the sermon, but it's valuable, because we're going to see God's silent presence right here. This is the presence of God. Sometimes you'll ask, how do I know that God is speaking to me? That's a question I'll get oftentimes. Um, some people say they've heard the audible voice of God. 
I've never heard the audible voice of God. I'm not going to say that you're a liar if you say you've heard the audible voice of God. I'm going to say I can't relate. It's never happened to me. I've got friends who love Jesus, Holy Spirit filled, speak in tongues and all that sort. I never have experienced that. So I don't, I can't um, um, translate for you. I'm lost at that. I don't understand it. I ain't saying you're not doing it. I'm saying it's not something I've experienced. I have on a handful of times, about three or four times, felt like God spoke to me. And when I say that, I don't mean the audible voice of God. I mean intuition. I mean in a dream. And I mean like a vision. And so I just knew like, is that, and it wasn't like lottery tickets. It wasn't like he told me who shot Kennedy. It wasn't like I knew this big expose. It was just kind of like, hey, a season in your life is about to change. Get ready for it. Here's how it's going. And it was like personal for me, and it was true. It came to happen. I was like, okay, God, God spoke to me. I guess it wasn't the pizza or the burrito because it actually happened. And so maybe God has spoken to you that way. And God works and God speaks always in his word, okay? Always speaks through his word. Like you can read the word of God and God is speaking to you through his word. And sometimes God is speaking through your circumstances. And so you need to welcome like through, through suffering in your life, God is speaking. Through success in your life, God is speaking. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God's silent presence through providence. Providence is God's silent presence. Throughout the scriptures, we'll see the visible hand of God. The visible hand of God is the burning bush. It's the parting of the Red Sea. It's the manna that falls from heaven. It is Jesus commanding Lazarus to raise from the dead. These are supernatural events that we call miracles. Maybe you've seen those. I haven't seen those. I've seen the invisible hand of God at work, where we've prayed for someone who wasn't supposed to live, and they lived. Now, I didn't see angels in the room that came in and said, hey, JV, what's up? Here's what's going to happen. wasn't like that. I prayed, and she was healed. The invisible hand of God. The invisible hand of God in your life is providence and predestination at work. And you're like, did he say predestination? We're going to get all, you know, we go in there? We'll go there for a minute, and I'll tell you why. And you may wonder, are you a predestination guy? I am. But here's what happens. Sometimes people tell me after the sermon, are you telling me my grandkids have to go to hell? I didn't say that. I don't know who told you that, but I didn't tell you that. I don't know why when I say that there's a predestined plan that you think that's what I said about your grandkids. Are you telling me? I'm just telling you what I'm telling. So listen to what I actually tell you and don't hold me accountable for what some other knucklehead told you about this. All right. But Paul tells us that we are foreknown and we are predestined and we are called in ways we can't fully understand, in ways that I won't even try to fully explain because I can't fully explain it. But here's how it works best. I think it works best, providence and predestination, as we look back in our past. I think this is a pastoral tool that Paul is trying to give us in the book of Romans, and it works best for answering the question, can you look back and see God's hand on your life? In the present, providence feels like coincidence. In the past, you can see, oh, I thought this move was going to ruin my life, and that's where I met my spouse. Oh, my goodness, this person came into my life and wounded me, but it pressed me further into Jesus, and I killed some idols in that season of my life, and I'm closer to God because of that suffering. And you just start to look back and see, like, oh, I met this person, and that's how I ended up in this career. And then we met this person, and that's how we ended up a part of this church. And you see God's hand on your life in seasons when you thought all is lost, all is wrong. And then now you look back with hindsight and they say hindsight's what? 2020. That's because for the Christian, hindsight is the providence of God. We get to read the book of Esther with chronological snobbery. We know the story. 
Or if you don't know the story, it's already been written. We already know what's going to happen. Esther and Mordecai are living this out. They don't know what's going to happen. So here's how this tool works best. As you look back in your life, you see God's hand at work, and you see the promise of how he's going to use things for your good. Okay, Bad things for your good. In the present, it feels like coincidence. But in the future, it gets weird if you try to use these tools for the future. Because you'll start, like when it comes to evangelism, you'll be like, I'll tell you about Jesus because I think he'll save you. You, I, you vote different. I, you can't be elect. There's no way God loves you, so I won't tell you. It gets weird. And then you start like fortune telling and like prophesying over people's lives like you think you know their future and all sorts of stuff. You end up in some kind of church that you find out later was a cult. So don't do that. No, I mean it. Quit it. Knock it off. Stop it. It's a good, strong tool. It's a doctrine. It's a theology. It's in the Bible. You don't have to like it, but it's in there. But it works best when we look back in the past. It gets really weird when you try to apply it to the future. Here's how you apply providence to the future and God's predetermined plan for your life. I don't know what God's predetermined plan for your life is. I'd be a fool to try to tell you what I think it is. I know what my predetermined plan for my kids is, and I'm finding out they got different plans, okay? We don't know what it is, but what we can do is trust. So as we lean into the future and all that uncertainty and stepping out on faith, we can feel the past where God was for us and with us, and we can press into the future believing that even though emotionally it doesn't feel that way, because it's not 2020 into the future, but we can trust and rest knowing that that is what God is doing that when we wake up with our heart racing and have seasons of anxiety, God's got this. And in 10 years, we'll look back and see how. But as we look forward, we'll just get weird if we try to apply it that way. I do anyway. I don't know about you. Yeah, I do. You'll get weird. So don't do it. So in verse 1, what this is, is providentially God has positioned Mordecai to get some change in his pocket with Ahasuerus. And this has positioned Esther to be queen. And they're about to start revealing their identity, that they're actually Jewish people, okay? After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Mordecai is growing in prominence with the king. Haman is growing in prominence with the king. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him every day, day after day, he would not listen to them because I think he's redneck like me and comes from, you know, Oklahoma like me. I just think that's the kind of guy he is. I ain't going to do it, okay? And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury because he won't. Pay homage to me. We're going to see these two knuckle-headed fellas cause a culture war. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now the significance of the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus is it's the whole Persian empire, and the Persian empire includes Israel and Jerusalem. So this would have wiped out all of God's people. And this is the reason Esther lives in this moment to sit on that throne, to be queen, to speak into the ear of Ahasuerus. And I'm just going to tell you the rest of the story. She saves God's people. And Haman, anyway, I won't, I won't 
You'll have to just keep coming. You'll know the rest of the story if you keep coming. But here's the thing. Some would say that this is Mordecai's time to shine, and this is like a, a spiritual reason that Mordecai won't bow. And, and it kind of goes back to when Daniel uh, wouldn't eat the king's meat in Babylon because it was offered to idols. And this is like Daniel not bowing to Nebuchadnezzar because he won't worship Nebuchadnezzar as God. You can think that. You may not be wrong. Here's what I think is happening. This, these two fellows have beef. And I don't mean they got butchered meat in the freezer. I mean they got a problem with, the, with one another. They have isms against one another. You might call it racism. They don't like each other. And it goes all the way back to this story in Kings whenever the first king of Israel named Saul screwed up. Okay, You may not know the story. It's a weird story, but it's in the Bible, so I'm going to tell it to you. And God's a big boy. He can defend himself. I don't know how to defend what he decided to do. It's what he decided to do. He's God. I'm just the preacher. I'll tell you what the Bible says. I didn't write the mail. I delivered the mail. Don't shoot the messenger. Okay? Are we, are we agree? You say yes, but you're going to send an email. I can feel it. You're going to send it anyway. Here, but here we go. The first king Israel had, this is before the Persian captivity. This is before the Babylonian captivity of Israel. This is whenever they were rising to become a superpower. They had armies. They had taxes. They had laws. They had their own government. They were their own nation. They were not a nation within a nation. And they wanted to be led by a king like all the other countries. And God gave them their first king, and his name was Saul. He was a stout dude. He was a good-looking dude. He was a dumb dude. Okay, And Samuel was the prophet. And Samuel the prophet would speak to God and then speak to Saul and tell him what God said to do. And for reasons only God knows, in his justice, he said the Agagites must be destroyed. Saul, go defeat the Agagites, defeat all of their people and all of their stuff. Do not plunder them, destroy them. Okay? So Saul goes, you bet. So Saul goes, he goes to war, he defeats the Agagites, and as they're starting to destroy all the livestock, he's like, well, that's a really good-looking heifer, and that horse would ride nice, and I can't get rid of that billy goat. Look at that billy goat. And so he keeps some of the best of the livestock. And then the king, it's time to kill the king, and he's like, ah, I'll keep him as a pet. Mike Tyson has tigers. I'll keep King Agag. Samuel shows up. Saul, how'd the war go? And Saul goes, everything's fine. You got kids. Y'all, who's been a kid if you don't have kids? Who has told a lie? Who doesn't have their hand up? You just told a lie. My kids lie. Sometimes I love my kids. They're in the room today, and they'll lie, and they'll go. Saul is approached by Samuel, and Samuel says, how'd the battle go? Saul's like, it went super good, man. God gave us victory. It was awesome. God bless the Lord. And brother, he's probably shaking his hand, calling him brother. Hey, brother. You know, all that stuff that when Christians get weird, he's doing that. And so then he goes, you know, like we turned into Hulk Hogan, you know, hey, brother, man, how's it going? Anyway, sorry. We don't have time for this. We got a lot to cover. But Samuel says, Saul, how's it going? And as Saul goes to answer, he hears, and Samuel's like, what in the world? And Saul's like, oh, about that. You know, we wanted to have a great feast for the Lord, and we thought we would butcher some of these animals, and you're just in time for steak, Samuel. And Samuel says, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep 
And so sometimes whenever someone is lying to me, I think in my mind, I hear the bleeding of sheep. And then Samuel's like, who is that? And Saul's like, oh, that's my cousin, Agag. You've, you've met him before. I think that's the king of the Agagites. And so I'm not, I don't understand it, but Samuel shows up and he slaughters everything and does what the king failed to do. And this was the beginning of Saul's downfall. And Mordecai comes from the tribe of Saul. And Haman is an Agagite who should not exist if Saul would have done what he was supposed to do. Do you see the tension? Years, hundreds and hundreds of years of beef among these people. And both of these people, the Israelite, the Agagite, living under Persian rule, and both trying to rise to enough prominence where they could cancel out the other. Does that sound familiar? We live in this culture. This is the culture that we live in. And we have these two fellows with this power abusing their power, and people in the middle are getting... And if, if Haman has his way, they'll be murdered, okay? So in verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, which is casting lots. This would be like rolling dice or drawing straws. This would be how they heard from the gods to know what they're supposed to do. We go to the scriptures to know what God would call us to do. They were casting lots. And they were doing this before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And, what, and then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and because they won't eat pork. You know, they have weird breakfasts. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So in other words, we need to have intolerance toward these people. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they might put it into the hands of the king's treasuries. In other words, I ain't above bribing a man to do this either. Okay? So the king took this, his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. What a title. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Time out. Just some interesting facts. The reason it lets us know the month of Nisan and all that stuff is this is the same time that God's people, as they gather, are celebrating the Passover. And so as they're celebrating their freedom from slavery in Egypt and the death angel passing over their families and sparing their families, at the same time, Haman is plotting their ultimate destruction. This is providence. This is irony. This is God's sense of humor. God is mocking Haman and his plot to destroy his people. That's what it's telling us. That's what the scripture is telling us. So in verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned, and on the 13th day of the first month, an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Ahasuerus is listening to his buddy who got in his ear, 
And it, the reason it took so long is because the Persian Empire was so large and it had so many peoples and so many different cultures and so many different languages. They had to transcribe and translate all of this to get the word out everywhere. It took about a year for this to happen. And the way they celebrated the death of all these people was by drinking. This is their culture war. We are living in days like this. And people are confused. Like the ordinary people who aren't abusing their power, they're kind of caught between and they're like, what is going on? I'm confused by the people with power pulling us and ripping us apart from one another. And if you're experiencing this, and I don't speak politically much, and I don't even know if this is political, I'm just trying to be a pastor, but I want you to know that we're starting to see the end of what I would call the mushy middle. We're starting to see the end where we would try to build a bridge to, a, to someone through social media or to the culture itself as Christians and be like, no, 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 man, we're cool. Like we hate sin, but we love the sinner. Used to people got what we meant by that, but now people just think, oh, y'all just hate people. Well, I mean, like some people do, but that ain't what I mean. But you're going to get lumped in with somebody. What I'm trying to say is you're going to be tempted not to use your power. These people are saved by a woman who became queen, and eventually she's going to not abuse her power like Mordecai and like Haman. She's going to use her power to save God's people from this plot to destroy them. And as we advance the mission of Jesus and as we proclaim the gospel, and when I say proclaim the gospel, I don't mean stand on the stage and wear plaid. What I mean is tell people your story of what Jesus is doing in your life. And you're going to be afraid because someone's going to cancel you out if you speak. But we must speak. So, for example, to speak against abortion into this culture climate that we're in is to uh, advocate for the killing of women. The reason I know that is just the other day I spoke against abortion on social media and someone said, so you want women to die. I went back through what I posted like, hmm. No, I no, it's not in there. And just to be clear, I'll say it in the camera, I do not advocate for the killing of women. I want everyone. My, the point is, I want people to live. That's my point. But this culture will not let you have the style points. You either drink their Kool-Aid or you don't, or you drink the other person's Kool-Aid. I ain't drinking no one's Kool-Aid. I take communion. And it's juice because, you're, you know, we're Baptist. So you can drive home. To speak as though gender confusion is an identity disorder is to speak as a bigot. To speak as, in, as, as the transgender movement is troublesome and worrisome is to speak as a phobic. It's not the case. To say truth, hard truth, to this culture, they receive it as hate speech. Now, you can weaponize truth and use it as hate speech. That's not what I'm advocating. But what I'm telling you is to say that something is wrong and is sin will be treated as though as you've committed an act of violence in this culture. And it's going to take grit to speak the truth and the implications of the gospel. So it's interesting to me that gender reassignment surgery doesn't help. I don't hate Transgender people, I don't hate those who've had abortions. I'm doing my best not to hate anybody, except whoever the Cowboys are playing, you know? I mean that, and I get it. There have been people that have used hate, weaponized biblical principles, and they're using hate to get their agenda across and to gain power. I think that's what Mordecai was doing. I know that's what Haman was doing. I'm not telling you all to do that. 
But I'm, and I'm not saying you got to speak up to every cultural war that's going on in our culture. I don't. Sometimes I just give you all U2 lyrics because I think that's what you need on a Tuesday night. I'm talking about my Facebook. I don't like shout it from the roof of my house. I'm talking about social media. I don't feel like I got to speak to every shooting. I don't have to speak to everything we're voting on in the culture. But I also don't want to have the reputation of never saying anything. And I don't want you to have that either. To not speak oftentimes is to speak. I'll advocate for re refugees, even though some people will say, don't you care about borders? Don't you care about keeping this country safe? They're going to kill your children. I, Jesus was a refugee. I don't know what to tell you. I'm, we're pro-Jesus, right? That has implications. But we must speak. This culture war, this one in Persia, was created by two men abusing their power. And eventually, the Jews will be spared by a woman not abusing her power, but by using her power for good. And this points us to Jesus, who did not abuse his power, but he uses his power for good. Jesus didn't use his power to cancel out sinners, but to cancel out sin. Jesus, rather than canceling us, he reconciled us through his cross. And I want you to know this, because this is true. Jesus has won his enemies by receiving the sword. But Jesus will defeat his enemies by wielding the sword. I'd rather be on the business end of his cross than his crown. So I speak. And when I speak, it's not just to get an agenda and just to get a president. It's not just to get those who disagree with me to agree with me. Because I don't care so much about the cultural stuff. I mean, I think Christians should make great art. And I can't believe we like, whatever, we don't have time for that. But it's a glory war. I want to see my lost friends be wrecked by the grace of Jesus. I'll speak to abortion because it has implications to the gospel, which ultimately means that Jesus loves and saves abortionists and will win them over by receiving the sword. But one day, he'll rip the sky apart. He'll swing his leg over his horse, and on it will be tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will wield a sword, and he will not win his enemies anymore. He will defeat them. And forever, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Our work is not to try to defeat our enemies. It is to win them. But you'll be tempted to win them by being too nuanced and by being too winsome and by never exposing sin. Here's how we live as a reconciled people. Here's how we deal with sin. We don't use hate. Our enemy uses hate. He weaponizes hate. He'll lace truth with hate. And the end result is blowing stuff up, sometimes literally, or it's making people operate off of fear, guilt, and shame, which is what Christ came to eliminate. So, so here's what we should do. We should treat our greatest threat as sin. The greatest threat that we face is not that someone would take away our guns. It's not that somebody would go in office that we didn't vote for. Those are important things. I care about those things. I have stuff to say about those things. I don't think that has anything to do with a sermon. But our greatest threat is sin. And in your relationships, your greatest threat is your own sin. And here's what we do with sin. We expose it, we confess it, and we forgive it as God's people. When I say expose sin, I say truth soaked in love. It is unloving to let people believe they're okay when they're not okay. It would be unloving for a doctor to tell a stage four cancer patient, you're fine, bro. Just get after that golf game, man. 
It would be unloving for me to let my kids play in the street. It would be unloving for me to let them build campfires in the house. I need to risk their disapproval of my parenting. Like if they pulled the kids, they're like, yeah, dad's got a 27% approval rating right now. But it's because I'm pastoring my family the way God would lead me to do. I'm okay with that. I hate that a friend of mine thinks that because I am not pro-abortion, I want all the women to die. I don't. I don't know if you've heard that. It's not true. I want everyone to live. That's what I want. But I will expose sin because it points people to Jesus. Sin is most powerless when it is confessed, when it's brought into the light, when we can confess it to those appropriately. There's nothing more powerful, fellas, dad, husbands, leaders, you have power in your home, and there's nothing more powerful if you can sit at the table or sit at the foot of one of your kids' bed at the end of the day after you've got it wrong and say, Dad blew it today. Dad's not God. Dad worships God. Dad's not Jesus. Dad needs Jesus. And today I was too harsh. My tone was harsh. The rules were based on my mood and not in the culture of grace we built for this family. And today I got it wrong, and I'm asking you to forgive me. That's powerful. We abuse our power when we conceal our sin or defend ourselves to the death. (laughs) Be vulnerable. Trust God's plan. If you're his, confess your sin. And then third, forgive sin. We forgive sin because our greatest hope is Jesus. Our greatest threat is sin. Our greatest hope is Jesus. And here's what happens. Grace, if you've tasted it, it will not terminate on itself. Grace never terminates on itself. Grace always replicates. Always. Jesus will happen to you. He'll happen in you. And he should be happening through you as well. That means that we are fully forgiven and we can fully forgive others who have sinned against us. You have power to expose sin in love. You have power to confess sin And trust that your sins have been paid in full by Jesus on the cross. And you have power and capacity to forgive others as you have been forgiven. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you'll not be forgiven. I think the gist of that is this. You can't give what you don't have. And I think some of you, when I say forgive, rather than standing toe-to-toe blaming each other like Mordecai and Haman... We're reconciled people to God and to one another. That should move us shoulder to shoulder, naming our sin rather than face-to-face blaming each other. It should end the culture war because the glory war has ended. We have peace with God. We should have peace with one another if we'll use the expose, expose, I don't know why I was going to say that word, the exposing of sin, the confession of sin, and the forgiveness of sin. But some of y'all think I'm saying, make light of sin, just get over it. It ain't that big a deal. ain't what I'm saying. Sin murdered Jesus. Sin put Christ on the cross. Sin is destructive. It's devastating. It murders. It kills. When this pastor says forgive, I'm not saying make light of your sins that have happened against you. I'm saying make much of the work of Jesus. May the cross of Jesus eclipse the wounds that we've had. Because listen to me on this. Jesus has paid in full for Mordecai looking at Haman. If Haman would turn to Christ and be saved, Jesus would pay in full for all of his plot and for all of his folly and for all of his evil. 
And if he doesn't turn and love and trust Jesus, then Haman will pay in full for all eternity for his sins. Our grudges, our culture wars, our bitterness, they're pathetic, pathetic compared to the grace of King Jesus or the justice of King Jesus. We can rest in the shade of his grace and his justice. If you want the capacity to forgive, historically it's looked like this. Once you hear the gospel of Jesus, you respond by believing in your heart that he raised from the dead and confessing with your lips that he's the leader of your life. People have been praying a prayer just like this. Father, forgive me of my sins and show me how to live. And he promises to do so. He'll accept you. He'll forgive you. He'll restore you. And you'll have that capacity to confess and to forgive. So as I pray, if you want to pray that prayer, you are more than welcome to. Let's pray.